Well, good evening to everyone. You can turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. Actually, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Philippians 2, 5 to 11, but we're going to begin reading in Philippians 1 at verse 27. As that, uh, in a way, begins the context. So we'll read again Philippians 1, beginning at verse 27 through to Philippians 2 and verse 11. So this is Philippians 1.27. This is the word of God. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation of Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind." Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men." And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, let's go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time of worship. We rejoice in this freedom that we can gather together to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one and only living and true God. And we thank you that we can gather together as the saints of Christ in this place. And we do pray that you'd bless us now by your Holy Spirit that we might rejoice in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might, uh, by that Spirit, know your word all the more and rejoice in the God and in the Christ to whom it points. And we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, just a little bit of the structure of the entire passage that, that we just read. And uh, before we look at that and, and move to, to chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, uh, Philippians was a, uh, was a prominent Roman colony at the time of uh, the writing of uh, this book, of the letter to the Philippians by the Apostle Paul. It was a, a foremost city, I believe Paul calls it, or Luke calls it in the, in the book of Acts. Um, and there were a number of notable things in its history that might uh, inform some of the things that we're, that we're reading here, uh, especially in verses uh, from chapter 1, verse 27 through uh, to 2.11 and, and elsewhere. Um, the, the city itself gains its name from a great champion in their history, uh, Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, whom you probably know more uh, than Philip II of Macedon. But Philippi was named after the father of Alexander the Great, who was a great military uh, 
commander. Uh, great in the sense of being a military commander, not so much as a man, but as a military commander and as the king of Macedon, the, the city gains its namesake from him. There was a great defeat of the Thracians in the, um, in the fourth century uh, BC. Uh, where um, Philippi became a prominent city shortly after that. It was also the site of Caesar Augustus. Uh, you'll remember that Julius Caesar in that famous Shakespearean account, uh, well, and in history as well, um, is killed by, uh, is killed by uh, people who conceived a plot against him. Well, Caesar Augustus gained revenge against those who killed Julius Caesar and gained a victory at, at Philippi. It, of course, has notable biblical history um, with the, uh, with the, the defeat of the triune God and the Lord Jesus Christ over that, uh, over that girl who had demon possession, the salvation of Lydia, the salvation of the, uh, of the Philippian jailer. Um, but it is a, it was a very prominent Roman city. And so this message comes to people who had a measure of pride in their own citizenship. It, it may be in their own nationality as being Philippians. They were Christians, obviously, and yet there is an exhortation here that they are to set aside conceit, that they are to set aside pride, and that they are to put on humility. And so we see the first section that we read here. There are particular orders given, and these are orders unto unity. Uh, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So there are these orders given that they would, in a sense, and, and it gets to the manner by which they are to be united in a moment, but they are to cast off humility, to, put, uh, to cast off pride, that is, to put on humility, and to be unified in the things of gospel truth. There is courage instilled following that, uh, that command given in verses 28 to 30 in the face of opposers, in the face of persecutors, in the face of the enemies of the gospel, they are not to be terrified because that very opposition is proof of the inevitable judgment that will come upon those who are persecuting them. And they have been granted not only to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is also this blessed divine gift of grace to suffer for the name of Christ. We, don't, we very often think of that first as a gift and not so much the second. But just as it is a gift to believe in Christ, so too is it an honor and a gift to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is then this disposition required laid out, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. So how are you to be unified? How are you to be as one man in one spirit, striving uh, together for the faith of the gospel? Well, you are to be like-minded of the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You're not to let anything be done out of selfishness, uh, self-serving ambition or conceit, pride, overconfidence, but in lowliness of mind, the uh, apostle Paul says in verse three, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That verse, uh, verses one to four of, uh, of chapter two, basically uh, that is the, the manner by which 
verse 27 of chapter 1 can come to fruition. We would be unified as Christians. We would be uh, as one man, as uh, in one spirit, striving for gospel truth if we put off our own selfish ambition and conceit, if we put off our pride, if we put off ourselves, and we put on humility and seek to put each other before before ourselves. That's the, the point of the Apostle Paul. And then he gets to our, our, our focus this evening. He gets to the, the, the most blessed example that he could put forth as an example of humility. And that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. So with regards to verses 5 to 11, we want to look simply at two things, the exhortation and the exemplar. So after the disposition required is laid out, the example is shown. The eternal son and the condescension from the pinnacle of glory to the lowest ignominy or shame to take upon himself man's nature to execute his task as the last Adam. That's what we have before here as this example shown. And first off then, notice the exhortation. Verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So what mind is he speaking of? Well, the mind that he opens up in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. What mind are we to have? We are to have a mind that is in Christ, that was in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus had such a disposition that he did not do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind put others before himself. Remember the words of Christ himself. The Son of Man did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the mind that we are to put on, the mind that the Philippians were to put on, was the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not, though he had every right to assert the, uh, the glory of his deity in his, uh, in his incarnate mission, though he had every right to assert his authority and his power and subvert the, the, the Roman government and uh, you know, overthrow the Jews by, by might and power, though he had every right to do so, he nevertheless took upon himself our humanity and in lowliness and in humility exercised the task in the terms of the covenant of redemption to redeem his elect to perfection. The Lord Jesus Christ, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So not only verses one to four, but also what's opened up in the following verses, uh, verses six to eight, that sort of mind should be in us. Now, we are not called, the Philippians were not called in this exhortation to somehow try to duplicate the, the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a uniqueness, of course, to the work of Christ that is not to be duplicated, that certainly cannot be duplicated. And so we're not called on here to duplicate the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to seek to exercise those things in our Christian walk that marked the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one in view is the, the height of humility. That's sort of an oxymoron, I guess, the height of humility. But the, uh, this blessed humility that the Lord Jesus Christ put on in his condescension to take upon himself man's nature for his redemption and recovery. So this exhortation is to be heeded, and it is it rubs against or it is to 
to be in contrast to their pride and any sort of nationalistic pride that they had in that uh, got in the way of their own Christian walk. There's very much there's language of uh, of politic involved in verse 27 when the apostle Paul here is writing regarding conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. They are to have conduct worthy of their their citizenship as those who are the citizens of heaven by virtue of the finished work of Christ. They are not to be so attached to their Philippian nationalism and the boast and the pride that came with it being a foremost city with a number of former Roman soldiers engaging in their retirement lives there, very prideful in their service to the Roman Empire perhaps, but much rather they were to have uh, pride, they were to glory in the Lord Jesus Christ and to so seek to live in manner of the perfection of his saving work and they being the blessed and undeserved beneficiaries of that saving work. So the exhortation is given, let this mind of humility be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then we have the exemplar. Uh, That simply means you obviously have heard the word example, and maybe you've heard the word exemplar before, but that's simply a person or a thing that serves as a typical or excellent example of a particular disposition, behavior, or something. And Jesus Christ is an example. He is the exemplar here that is set forth. But we ought to always qualify this with noting that Jesus Christ is not simply an example. He is first and foremost the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God who assumed our humanity for the perfection of redemption. When we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we think of his incarnate mission, it is not that he came forth to be an example for holy living, but much rather he came to redeem his elect. He came to save sinners from their sins. He came to bring a multitude of sons to glory. But the Apostle Paul does use the Lord Jesus Christ here as an example, and he does so elsewhere. Just very briefly, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians, just to see the use of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ as an example for holy conduct on the part of those who are Christ's. In 2 Corinthians 8, you can turn with me there. Here we have an exhortation for the people of God to engage in a measure of, uh, of fiscal giving, uh, you know, parting with some of their goods and their riches in order to serve and to help uh, other churches. And so here we have this language in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And he's giving this exhortation in the context of fiscal giving on the part of the churches. And so what is it? How do we stir up this heart of giving? How do we stir up this heart of helping others? Well, we set forth the Lord Jesus Christ as an example. Though he was rich in his pre-incarnate glory, yet he put on, he took on poverty in taking on humanity that by the perfection of his saving work, those, us who are poor, might become rich by virtue of the plenitude of his grace and the excellencies of his redemption. So coming back to Philippians 2, we see that Christ is set forth here as an exemplar, as the best example for humility. And there are a number of things that we want to track through in observing this 
uh, our Christ as the exemplar, as the chief exemplar for humility. So five things we're going to look at. The first thing we want to note is his consubstantiality with the Father. That simply means that he is of one substance with the Father and, of course, with the Spirit. He is of the same essence or the same substance, the same nature as the Father. Notice the language beginning uh, in verse 5 again. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, And so you see this example that's being set forth is starting at the the pinnacle, the the height of glory. It's starting at a position of loftiness in order to bring us and to carry us to the point of lowliness that we might exemplify that or that we might rather follow the exemplification. But we begin here with Christ in the form of God. This is a reference, of course, to his pre-incarnate glory. He never loses that, that, that deity or that glory. But this is starting in the pre, that pre-incarnate glory where Jesus Christ is in the form of God. This speaks with regards to his oneness with the Father or his consubstantiality. Our Our confession of faith in uh, chapter 2, paragraph 3, says that uh, in uh, in um, uh, in this God, in this one and only living and true God, in this being who is God, there are three subsistences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity. And so the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, bringing forth the reality of this blessed condescension on the part of Christ, begins with that one substance reality. Christ is in the form of God, who being in the form of God. Now, there has been, uh, in the history of interpretation, Two positions that, uh, regarding this language of in the form of God. Some have taken it to, to be and, and to the exclusion of the other option uh, in one case or, or uh, in the case um, of their particular position. That the form of God means the manifestation or the visible manis- manifestation of the glory of God. Because elsewhere in the scriptures, the particular Greek word used is, is used always in that context with regards to a visible manifestation of a thing. Um, the other position takes it as the form of God being uh, simply synonymous with essence or substance or nature. Most of the early church fathers took that particular view. And some of the modern interpreta- uh, interpreters would say, well, you know, they were just tied up in Christological controversies, and that sort of twisted their interpretation a little bit. Um, well, I think we're, we're okay if we see this as, because there is there is a... Uh, a juxtaposition in the passage with form of God and form of a bondservant. So later on, as we work through the passage here, we'll see that Christ took humanity. He took on the form of a bondservant. So if he had that nature, that uh, human, that, uh, you know, human substance, he took upon himself. He was of one substance with us, according to his manhood, as the old creed said, then surely form of God also means he had the substance of God, the essence or the nature of God. But of course, we have the reality that Christ was the visible manifestation of the glory of God in his incarnation. 
that, that one, our Lord Jesus Christ, or the Son of God, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 of John 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then what's John's declaration? And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so all of that to say, Christ is of one substance with the Father. He has, as being in the form of God, the same substance, the same nature, the same essence, and he is also the visible manifestation of the glory of God um, in, his, uh, in his incarnate mission. And so we have the fact that Christ is one with the Father. What a glorious truth that we have, the deity of Jesus Christ. And this is something that we need to hold on to as Christians, is that which is, um, is, that which is essential to the Christian faith. To deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be outside of salvation. Christ himself says that if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This passage here asserting with the greatest clarity that we can have, Jesus Christ being in the form of God, this particular passage has been used as um, an apologetical and polemic passage against those who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ since the advent uh, of Paul penning this with, uh, with ink in, in the first century. Paul isn't using it here polemically. Paul isn't using it here as a polemic against those who would reject the deity of Jesus Christ. He, assuming it, knowing it, glorying in that truth, is simply using this and moving towards the incarnation of Christ as an example for humility. But in the history of the church, it has been used and rightly used to argue for the glory of Jesus Christ and his essential deity. There's a great passage by... Um, uh, Chrysostom, when he's uh, when he's uh, doing an exposition on this particular uh, on this particular passage, and he personifies Philippians two six to eleven almost as not almost as as a warrior wielding a great sword, and he pictures he names he names about eight different heretics that denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he pictures them as a Roman phalanx. It's like a military formation where they had their shields and their spears and they would hide behind their shields against the enemy, sometimes poke their swords out and go back behind their shields. And so he, he sort of pictures the heretics as that. And then this passage as a warrior with a giant sword that jumps and smashes that and dashes it to a thousand pieces because of its clarity, because of its simplicity in setting forth the glory of Jesus Christ in his essential deity. And so he is of one substance with the Father, being in the form of God. He is also then, of course, equal with the Father. Notice the text carries on. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So, of course, by being in the form of God, he is equal with the Father. He is not in any way inferior to the Father. This language of did not consider it robbery to be equal with God uh, carries the weight or the interpretation of did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Uh, some would say held on to at all costs, but came in the incarnation and uh, exercised uh, the perfection of, um, uh, of redemption. And so all of, that to, all of that to say this asserts Again, in starting at loftiness, the equality of the Son of God with the Father. Uh, there are some in our day that are seeking to, that are trying to uh, denigrate the Lord Jesus Christ to a position lower than the Father. You've perhaps heard of, uh, 
of the eternal, uh, eternal functional submission or the eternal submission of the son, subordination of the son. The subordinationism of old is prominent in our day with people even within the reformed camp arguing for uh, the son of God being eternally subordinate in some sense to the father. The text, though, is clear in contrast to that. He is equal with God. Some of the, some of the, he is equal with the Father. Some of the, uh, the, the early church fathers spoke this way, asserting the clarity that the scriptures bring regarding the fact that Christ is in no way inferior to the Father according to his deity. It cannot please the good Father if the Son be judged inferior rather than equal to his Father. That's Ambrose. He is in no way inferior to the Father, Chrysostom. Ever be spoken among us with boldness that famous dogma of the Father's which builds up the churches in the sound doctrine wherein the Son is confessed to be of one substance with the Father and the Holy Ghost is ranked and worshipped as of equal honor. That's Basil of Caesarea. And then Spurgeon, of course, any doctrine which hath not the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as equal persons in one undivided essence, we cast aside as being unsound, for we are sure that such doctrines must be derogatory to God's glory. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equal with the Father, in no way inferior. Inferior according to his humanity? Certainly. But according to his de deity, and as the Son of God, the second of the blessed triune, in no way inferior, being one with the Father and equal with him who begat him. And remember, the Apostle Paul is starting here, moving from the loftiness of deity to the lowliness of the assumed humanity, where we go now. Thirdly, so we have his consubstantiality with the Father, his equality with the Father, and now we have his condescension in the incarnation. If Christ is, and he is, but Christ is of one substance, consubstantial with the Father according to his deity, he is then, in assuming our humanity, consubstantial with us or of one substance with us according to the manhood, according to his humanity. The passage reads thus. Notice the language again as it moves from deity, glory, equality with the Father to the lowliness of humanity, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You know, this is, this is where, and we've, you know, we've read this passage before, we've heard this passage before. Hopefully as Christians, we're never so far removed from our first grip upon Christ that we can't, however many years after our conversion, come to passages like this in glory in our Savior Jesus Christ. What, what, a, what an amazing condescension we have from the form of God, from equal with God, to making himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That Christ took on our humanity for our redemption, for our recovery, is the most blessed thing to contemplate, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ, that the Son of God, the second of the blessed triune, in time and in history, assumed our humanity, took upon himself our nature with all the essential properties and the common infirmities thereof, and yet without sin, 
and exercised and perfected the blessedness of redemption. What a truth we have in this language that the son of God, that the maker of angels, that the the maker of galaxies, that the maker of the universe would condescend and make himself of, of no reputation. What a blessed truth. Taking on the form of a bondservant. The one who is master of all is found as a, as a bondservant in the lowliness of his incarnation. What a, what a blessed truth. The council of Chalcedon, the creed that they generated, speaks in these words. We then, following the Holy Father's all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin. We, we ought to note here that the language uh, is used in, in other Bibles and it speaks with regards to to uh, Christ as emptying himself. Um, The language would be at verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. That's an okay okay rendering, but it has been the the cause of Christological grief throughout the the centuries where some some are proposing that this emptying is, um, this emptying is a divesting of, his glory and his deity in some way somehow which is impossible with god setting aside divine attributes and perfections for a time and then regaining them at his exaltation or something like that uh that that is madness and it is against the words of scripture and is it is against the nature of god and the nature of course of the son of god being of one substance with the father and equal with him who begat him so this emptying what is it then or this making of no reputation it is the taking on of humanity our nature and not the divesting of his deity or the temporary setting aside of glory and attributes. So this emptying, this making himself of no reputation is simply the assumption of humanity. In fact, the very next verse says that taking the form of a bondservant that's linked. How is it that he emptied himself? How is it that he made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a bondservant by assuming humanity and coming in the likeness of men. We ought to note as well that there's a very common saying that unfortunately uh, gained traction decades ago. Um, and it's the saying that Christ here, um, this, this language is subtraction by addition that Christ added humanity to himself. Um, We must observe that the language of union is to be infinitely preferred against the language of addition. God cannot add to himself humanity. Humanity was not added to deity because nothing can be added to deity. Deity is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all its glorious perfections, in all his glorious perfections. And so that language of subtraction by addition, Christ didn't add humanity to himself. He assumed humanity, which then is birthed forth or then uh, comes forth and results in union. So it's assumption unto union. It is not by subtraction. It's not by addition, but it is by assumption unto union that Christ has humanity and has it eternally in the bliss of heaven as he, expo- as he displays the glory of the perfection of his redemption to the elect throughout eternity. 
And so Christ is perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood. And do you see the motion of the passage in exhorting Christians to humility? The, the bliss, the glory, the perfection of deity in, in, that, in, in that pre-incarnate glory. And then the movement now as it moves down to our lower ignominy, as the old boys would say, or our lower shame, our earthliness, our humanity, Christ, the Son of God, assuming that humanity for our redemption and for our salvation. What a, what a blessed, blessed movement we have in this passage. There is a there is a um, an account in the early uh, in the early Roman Empire in the first century. It was around 115 uh, 115 AD ish, um, and Pliny the Younger was a was a Roman an unbeliever, um, uh, one faithful to the Roman Empire and the uh, the Roman Caesar worship, the Roman deification of Caesars in that particular uh, era, and he wrote letters to Trajan. Um, and would write letters regarding his investigation into Christians, um, finding out what are these Christians all about, what are they doing, you know, what, what's going on, what should we do with them. Ultimately, it would end up in their persecution and the putting to death of Christians and forcing those who weren't Christians but said they were to, to, uh, to kiss an image of the Caesar and to reject Christ and to own uh, the Roman emperor uh, as God. And one of the accounts that Trajan wrote um, says that they, the Christians who gathered together on a fixed day, the Lord's Day, sang responsively a hymn to Christ as to God. And that's what this particular passage is called, the hymn to Christ as to God. This is uh, an early Christian hymn in essence and in form that the Apostle Paul is bringing forth here and subsequent generations of Christians have sang the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the hymn to Christ as to God. The movement of this hymn is absolutely blessed. And we move then now to his obedience unto death as the reason for his incarnation. So Christ comes in the incarnation. He takes upon himself humanity. What is the reason for the assumption of humanity, the uniting of humanity to himself? Well, we see here in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So his obedience unto death is the reason for his incarnation. Christ came into this world sinners to save. According to the Apostle Paul, that is a, 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 a worthy saying, or a saying worthy of all acceptation, a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into this world sinners to save. His obedience unto death is the reason for his incarnation. It was not that he came as an example, though he does serve as such, but much rather he came as the savior of the sons of men. He came to redeem us from our sins. This should be a blessed thing. Again, as we noted this morning, as we reflect upon our sins, there's a wholesome exercise where we can look back upon the fact that we have transgressed the law of God at every point. And not only did we do that prior to our conversion, but we do daily as those with remaining corruption being conformed to the image of his son. And yet we can very quickly move from the fact that we have transgressed and that we do transgress to the one who redeems us, to the one who has saved us, to the one who has came and took upon himself our humanity that he might 
perfect obedience in our stead and that he might die upon Calvary's cross to bring us to everlasting bliss. What a blessed thing, his obedience unto death. The language, of, uh, again, of the text is he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, even the cross death. Th- this brings forth the reality that Jesus Christ, from conception to exaltation, was Uh, his life was marked by one of obedience. Not only was his life one of perfect obedience from cradle to grave, but it was one of perfect obedience rendered substitutionarily or vicariously, that is, in our place, in in the place of all of his people. Christ came and he was perfectly obedient to the law of the Father in every jot and tittle in our stead, in the stead of all those who believe. And he died upon Calvary's cross. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Obedient at every movement, obedient at every, every act of speech, every action that the Savior did. Everything that came from his blessed lips was perfection. Everything that came from his hands and his feet and from his energies was perfection. And it was all rendered unto the glory of God and for a substitutionary obedience that is given to us, uh, beheld and laid hold of by faith alone. And then, of course, the obedience that he rendered in taking upon himself the guilt and the wrath due for sinners upon the cross of Calvary. What a blessed life of obedience that we have on the part of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we recognize that we are disobedient, we ought to have our thoughts quickly fly to the one who is perfectly obedient in our place. What a blessed thing. What a, what a horrible thing it would be were it the requirement that we would somehow have to work ourselves to heaven. Not only, of course, is that impossible. Well, that's the key reason, because it is impossible. Anyone who seeks to try and do that is, is running, against, is running uh, against the grain and the unrelenting waters of divine revelation and the very nature of God who cannot look upon sin favorably. But he can look upon us in his son, the one who never sinned and the one who died for sinners. What a blessed thing we have in his condescension in the incarnation and in his obedience unto death as the reason for that incarnation. Uh, In his perfect life and in his perfect death, vindicated and displayed, uh, displaying that perfection of work in the resurrection from the dead and his subsequent exaltation, Uh, ascension and coronation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, our champion, the one who is worthy of our affections. And this passage closes here with the blessed result of the perfection of Christ's mediatorial work. So Christ takes upon himself humanity. He perfectly exercises the conditions of the covenant of redemption. He saves his people being their substitutionary righteousness and obedience and being their guilt-bearing, wrath-bearing curse, substitute upon Calvary's cross. What then happens upon the heels of that perfection or that perfect work? Well, we have That, beginning in verse 9, therefore, that wonderful word that transitions in this case from the blessedness of his work to the result of that work, therefore, God also has highly exalted him 
and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we think about, if we contemplate the, the lowliness and the, the humility that the Lord Jesus Christ exercised in his incarnate work, if we reflect upon the fact that he came to his own and his own did not receive him, if we reflect upon the fact that only a handful uh, followed him, a couple handfuls plus two <laughs> truly, truly followed him, that there was not a large following of other believers beyond the disciples at first, but the majority of those were opposed to him, were in unbelief, wanted him dead, wanted him judged, wanted him put away, wanted him silenced. That the scene before his crucifixion where he is spit upon, where he is mocked, where he is given as the so-called king of Israel, though he was truly the king of Israel, that, that reed scepter and that crown of thorns, where he's beaten, where he's bruised, where he's spit upon, where he's mocked, where he's ridiculed, where he's ultimately crucified upon that Roman gibbet of execution. As we scan all of that, it's a blessed thing to contemplate those things as Christians, but isn't it likewise blessed then to move from that scene of gore, of brutality, of blood, and to move to this scene of exaltation? That Christ, in the perfection of his work, following the perfection of his saving work, is now resurrected and is now highly exalted, has ascended to the right hand of the majesty of high, uh, majesty on high. What a blessed victor, and what a blessed hero, and what a blessed result that follows the perfection of his redeeming work. He has highly exalted and given him the name which is above every name, King of kings, Lord of lords that at that name every knee should bow. Now, this language in verses 10 and 11, this isn't exclusive to the people of God, bowing the knee and confessing with the tongue. This is a, a, an all-containing a, 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 all set of verses that speak both to believer and to unbeliever. And what we mean by that is that at the end of days, on that great day of judgment, those found in unbelief who did not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the unbelievers, they will bend a knee, forced by the power and the glory of divine splendor. And they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in their judgment as they're cast into the lake of fire reserved for the devil and his angels. Now, it's sometimes hard to do, but we ought to rejoice in that, that God is sure to his promises in judging, judging those who are his enemies, who are those who are his opponents, who are those who reject the glory of Jesus Christ, follow after the fancies of their own minds, and are in opposition with every breath to the living and true God. There are those, of course, who in saving belief will not be forced to bow, but will bow in the blessedness of their worship that will confess with believing tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And ought, it be our, ought not it be our prayer that, that multitudes of unbelievers would receive the gospel and by God's spirit would be brought to life out of death, that they won't be those who will be forced to bow, forced to confess, 
but that ministers, that missionaries, that pastors, that ourselves going out in the streets, speaking to whomever, that God would use his people to go forth throughout the nations, bringing the message of so glorious a redeemer, and that by God's grace and by his spirit, he would bring forth by that gospel many to confess with a voluntary bowing and with a blessed redeemed tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That ought to be our prayer. We are, brethren, to exercise humility. Calvin says, Since then the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. Reflections upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his work, is to drive us to that proper disposition of lowliness before the triune God and before Christ whom he has sent. We should never be such who are marked by pride, by conceit, by selfish ambition. With such a Savior and with such a work uh, wrought upon us by victorious and amazing grace, we should never be those who are found to be with pride. Since then the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. And we are always and ever to reflect upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a Sunday thing. It's not a Lord's Day thing. It's an everyday thing. To reflect upon the fact that we've been brought out of the darkness and the madness and the chaos and the havoc of sin and depravity. We have been brought to the kingdom of the Son of his love by the perfection of such a Savior's work, who being in the form of God and equal with God, did not consider that equality something to be held onto, but took upon himself our humanity for our redemption and recovery. What a, what a blessed thing. And we are to worship him and confess his lordship. Isn't it a blessed, pass, a blessed thing that we see after Christ has gone through that, that bloody and that gory cross work? Post-resurrection, we see his disciples worshiping him and worshiping him as he's ascending into heaven upon the clouds of glory. This Jesus Christ who saved us from our sins is now at the right hand of the majesty on high and there he ever lives to make intercession for us. Worship our blessed Christ, worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and be found in Christ, not having your own righteousness, but the righteousness that he won for us by his own work, by the perfection of his redemption. And as we go home this evening on a blessed Lord's Day, as you're driving back to your, your various abodes, reflect upon our glorious Savior, and do so every day, and rejoice in the perfection of his redemption. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We rejoice in your revelation to us. We thank you that we can avail of it, that we can read it in liberty, um, that we can read it in freedom, that we have these opportunities to gather together publicly on your special day for worship. We pray that you would impress upon us the message that we heard this evening, that we would not be marked by pride, but that we would be marked by a proper and a Christian humility. Uh, that we would be humble before the triune God of heaven and earth and in light of the fact that Christ Jesus, very God of very God, light of light, true God from true God, took upon himself our nature for our redemption, that we would be found, of, uh, found as those seeking unity, seeking to be as one man in one spirit, striving for the faith of the gospel by putting others' interests before those of our own. And we do pray that you'd go with us. Help us to reflect daily upon our Savior and help us, Lord God, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of your gospel, not because we will be saved by that conduct, but having been saved by amazing grace, we seek to be lights in this lower world. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.